This is our 200th episode. And while 200 is simply a base 10 number, it's quite round, and that's it, I want to acknowledge our team who helps bring this show to the feed many times each week. This show does not happen without my co-host Eliza Abarbanel, our amazing producers Shalia Harris and Pat Stango, our incredible editor Clayton Gumbert, and mostly all of you listeners out there. Thank you for tuning in each week. Thanks for the messages on Instagram and the emails and the DMs and the tweets. And thanks for telling all your friends about Taste and for hanging out in this little corner of the internet each week. Now, on to my talk with Gail Simmons. We like to be off-duty when we're eating because we do love eating and we want to always love eating and dining out and discovering new things. I don't judge the food. I don't even think about it. I'm just excited to be there and taste things and be in the moment with my fellow diners. But we listen on other conversations and we hear people say things like, oh, this dish lacks acid. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Gail Simmons is simply a very cool human being. I I love Gail. While many know her best from Top Chef, her career in food expands way beyond the judges' table. She trained at culinary school and went on to assist legendary food writer and columnist Jeffrey Steingarten. She also worked the line in busy New York City restaurants and is the author of two books, including her latest, Bringing It Home. I wanted to have Gail on to talk about that restaurant past and also what's up with the new season of Top Chef. I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Gail Simmons. So let's go back. You were episode five. Yeah. And that was back at Books Are Magic. We did a packed house. We Mm -hmm. talked about your cookbook, which I love. That was a big night for me just to take it back because we were in my hood in Brooklyn. I was with you, an old friend. But also I cooked we, you know, I made food. You did. To come to do the podcast with you. And we cooked it all in my kitchen and like walked it over. I know. And Books or Magic told us no one had ever done that before. I was very ambitious. Uh, but it was a really great, energetic, special yeah. night. So thank you. Oh, absolutely. I'll link to that in the show notes. We're going to cover probably all new territory here. Um, we're at episode 200. Mazel tov. I mean, I love it. It's a round number. It doesn't really mean much, but it means a lot that you're here. I, I mean, I feel like it. Me, I'm honored. I, I think that also speaks to you and the quality of well, your thanks. work. Thanks I mean, for listening. That is a major accomplishment. Thank you. Two hundred of anything. It's like we're getting reps because I think we were talking off mic. You have done more television than most people who are on television in Maybe. terms of hours. I've never thought of it that way when you said it. In terms of hours, yes. Yeah. Uh, for sure. Over the course of like 17 years yeah. of me being actively on television, on television, which is also something I never thought I would do. I have spent a lot of hours on television that I don't know if everyone thinks about or I certainly don't think of that way. But when you put it all together, it adds up to a lot of time. A lot of reps, too. Yeah. So so that first season, I mean, rough or okay? Were you like boom right away out of the cannon? No, 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 (laughs) no. I think back to that first season of Top Chef and I do not recommend that anyone really go back and watch it. Um, no, that's not true. Watch it. It's great. Harold um, Dieterle won. Harold Dieterle, who is now, you know, my neighbor in yeah, Brooklyn. We same. see each other at school drop-off every morning. Um, <laughs> and he's still a, a good friend. I yeah. mean, I, I met him on that show. I never yeah. became friends with him while we were on the show. But no. afterwards, I've seen such an amazing trajectory of his life. And, every, you know, so many chefs on the show. But mm. uh, season one was a total 
social experiment yeah. for all of us, for the production team, for Bravo, for Tom and I. Uh, it felt like we were completely doing something new and exciting and terrifying. Yeah. And in terms of my personal place on the show, I I certainly did not feel confident about it until, well, <laughs> really a few seasons later. A few seasons later, you you got the reps that you needed. And at now you're you're in 17 years in the game. That's right. What 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 still stresses you out about production? Uh, there's a lot. I, I feel very lucky that extraordinarily so many people who are in those first couple seasons with us, the, the producers, the camera mm. operators, the audio team, um, you know, the, 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 the people who make the yeah. show physically are still with us. You know, the show has grown a lot, obviously, and evolved a lot. But there are so many pieces that no one sees that are really the most stressful mm. uh, from casting and the team that does the casting, who I think do a really amazing job, yeah. it's that we have really nothing good. to do with. Yeah, yeah. You 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 basically get a list of names, and then it's it. We get a list of names. Yeah. Uh, Tom has a little more mm. early interaction with those names. Sometimes running resumes by him. Sure. You know, he reads a resume for a television show differently as a chef than the producers do. They're looking for the entertainment. He's looking for the chops. Yeah. And uh, and then really we get a list of the contestants two days before we start shooting, and we get top-line bios of them. You know, where they're from, the five restaurants that they've cooked at, or, you know, top five restaurants they've cooked at, and sort of a a sentence about their philosophy. Do you hit the gram hard? Do you just go right in? No, we really don't. You really don't? No. You want to go in, like, clear clear head? Yeah, Yeah. we just want to go in objectively and see how they can cook. We'll get to more Top Chef. I know Top Chef heads will want to hear more about the new season, which sounds incredible. Thank you. Um, I have not watched an episode, but I, by the time this airs, it will be out. But I want to go back to your to your life a little bit. You, sure. You, you spent some time in a kibbutz in Israel. I did. I'd love to get into that. I think many of our listeners maybe don't know that about you um, and also your, your professional cooking career. But yeah. first, Israel, what was that like? What was the food like on the kibbutz? Um, you know, looking back, I was 18 years old. I graduated high school. And in the summer between high school and college— I went to Israel and spent over two months there, most of which was spent on a kibbutz in northern Israel, sort of up near the Lebanon border. Oh, right on. And uh, a kibbutz is a complicated construct uh, that has changed a lot over the years, but was originally created as these sort of communal living communities, Mm -hmm. um, really a socialist construct to build that country when it gained independence in 1948, these farming communities where everyone lived together, worked together, and everyone contributed. So no matter what you did, you could be the doctor of the community and you could be a a fruit picker, but everyone contributed towards the common goal Mm. of farming the land, manufacturing, creating product, and building up that country. And they would take in volunteers to help them. So I went to this community that was about five or 600 people. It had extensive fields and farming. Yeah. It had a massive chicken farm. It had a shoe factory. Ooh, a chicken farm. Well, that's where that's I worked. gnarly. Oh, really? Yes. Dang. Uh-huh. Chicken farms aren't pretty places. Nope. <laughs> uh, I learned a lot about myself that summer, Matt. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for many reasons, but mostly because that the first place I was assigned to work was the chicken farm, the lol, as it is called yeah. in Hebrew. And uh, my hours, I started work every morning at 6 a.m., we picked eggs. We weren't killing chickens. We were picking eggs. Yeah. Although at times it 
meant that we had to kill a chicken, but only if the chicken was sick yeah. or there was a complication. You were, like, maintaining the chicken laying operation. Correct. That's pretty gnarly. <laughs> we were picking chick- chicken eggs yeah. five times a day mm. and thousands of chickens, thousands of eggs. Uh, they were not um, totally free-roaming, mm. They, but, but they were in these, you know, they had room to run around. Yeah. And it was relatively, you know, organized that way and gave them space and then they would go and lay their eggs in these little chicken cubes boxes and uh they didn't like that we picked their eggs it's not uh, instinctively as a mother it's not a good thing no there's a lot of screaming yeah a lot of screaming a lot of pecking uh Ah. they're quite vicious animals and uh for a while i hated eggs yeah um (laughs) despised them i was so resentful of those nasty chickens and i was totally put off of eating chicken and eggs for the first few weeks that i was there and then I came to eat them out of spite. <laughs> but then the spite grew into respect and yeah. uh, reverence, really, for yeah. the egg. And after about a month or so working in the chicken farm, I was assigned, I moved. I worked briefly in the avocado and lychee fields, which was yeah. beautiful and glorious. Also hard work. Work fixing an irrigation system. And then I went into the kitchen and I was assigned work in the kitchen. And that was the first professional kitchen I ever I wanted to went ask into. That, that really did that spark an interest that would lead you to culinary school, which would lead you to journalism. And now. Yes, all, all of the above. Without yeah. knowing it, it was not a conscious spark. Yeah. My first job was as a dishwasher, as everyone's first job mm. in a kitchen should be. It was incredibly humbling. I had my Sony Sports Walkman. Oh, the yellow one? The yellow I one. I love it. Waterproof. Which was um, my bat mitzvah gift. Love it. And five years later, I took it to Israel, and <laughs> um, I put on my headphones and my mixtapes. Oh, it was a mixtape? Yeah, the actual... it depends. You know, I had a selection of okay. cassette tapes. I had LL Cool J. Oh, for that sure. Was my, that was my Good. tape nice of that one. era. Yeah. Nice one. What about you? I'm trying to think. You know, the, the next summer, I remember, which was different, my cassette tape of choice on that same Walkman was Peter Gabriel, li- like his live double album was what nice. I listened to all summer long. I don't know why. Sledgehammer, let's go. I love uh, that. Amazing. But that summer, oh, oh, I know what it was. Of course I know what it was. It was Rage Against the Machine yeah. and uh, Soundgarden uh, and, and, and Pearl Jam 10. Mm. That's what I was really listening to. Those were the albums. Oh, and Jane's Addiction. A lot of Jane's Addiction. Love it. Uh, so I was an angry 18-year-old <laughs> a little bit, but it was the perfect music to listen to while I was washing dishes for six to eight hours a day. I love it. Let's fast forward to New York. You're working in kitchens. You're working. You went to culinary school. Yes. You're working in kitchens. Tell me, um, give me one example of just like the life of a of a intern or a, just yeah, a line an cook. apprentice and then a line yeah. into a, being well, a line was, cook. Because I think a lot of our listeners might not realize that you are a professional. Yes. You, you went and actually. I was a cook. You were a cook. Yes. Not a chef, but I no, certainly I, I was might, a cook. I ain't going there. I ain't yeah. using that yeah. one. Thank yeah. Thank you. Um, wow. Well, you know, I will say that the the life of a line cook then is not the same as it is now. Yeah. In a lot of ways, some ways are similar, but this was 20-ish yeah. years ago, more, 22 years ago. Own it. It's great. Yeah, 22 years ago. Yeah. It's a big, big, yeah. amazing accomplishment. It was the hardest physical work I've ever done in my life, including picking those eggs. Um, aligned definitely in terms of challenging with having children physically. And uh, <laughs> it was an enormous learning experience. It, I chose difficult kitchens, um, mm-hmm. sort of out of naivety, but oh. also 
because I was ambitious and I really wanted to learn everything. And the first kitchen I went to was very big and I was the only woman in the kitchen. But really what it taught me was discipline and endurance. You know, Mm -hmm. um, when you start in a kitchen, you start at the very bottom. And I was doing a lot of chopping. Picking herbs and all that kind of Picking herbs, chopping carrots, potatoes, making crepes. One of the first jobs I had was making crepes every morning. So I would have to make a few gallons of crepe batter and then stand over a very hot stove in the very back of the prep kitchen with this one single crepe pan that had been kind of passed down from cook to cook, you know, flipping crepes. And I remember that I cried a lot, but I remember the one good thing about working that job was that my face was so red and sweaty (laughs) from being over that stove for so long, making crepes that no one could ever tell I was crying. Oh, I love it. It's blend. Isn't that terrible? I mean, it's really traumatic. It's dark. Now, Now, can you look at a crepe yet? Like now. Oh, yes. Now I feel like you do. The, it's rote memory. Like that's the thing. The dishwashing experience yeah. and the crepe making are now things that are really like ingrained in my physical memory. Yeah. And I love doing those things. I can mm-hmm. do them very intuitively because I tune out and I go to my zone yeah. and I can, you know, that's why cooking, I think, still is very much a respite for me and an escape. Oh, world I was going to ask you, Gail. A way to relax at home because I can go to this place and I love, ah. I love like the physical monotony of cooking. So is there anything that takes you back to the line now? Do you ever like do a push a big service at your house? <laughs> I mean, once in a while I throw a dinner party. Throw a dinner party. Um, it's like pushing a service, right? I mean, cooking for children is far <laughs> harder than cooking for any right. fancy chef I ever worked under that's for sure they are mean and fickle but uh it's more not necessarily like you know you certainly cook at home very differently than you cook in restaurants they are two different ways of cooking and the volume and the kind of method that you use when you're cooking in a restaurant is different Mm -hmm. but there's no question that i cook um at home way more efficiently oh, yeah. because of my time. You got, you got great skills. Right. You got bomb skills. You're, and you're, I'm just comfortable yeah. and I'm not intimidated by big jobs. Yeah. You know, my husband, who isn't a cook, but loves to cook and does a lot of great things in the kitchen, um, he gets very frustrated by the monotony of oh. things you have to do in the kitchen. Like if I have to, if he, I ask him to pick a lot of herbs yeah. or cut a lot of carrots. And yeah. But for me, that's my meditation. Yeah. Let's fast forward. You assisted Jeffrey Steingarten, the famous restaurant critic at Vogue mm-hmm. for years. Mm-hmm. I mean, really one of the, the greats in our business. I would agree. I'd like to talk about him a little bit. We don't, we, I'd like to have him on the show sometime. Good luck to you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not for any other reason than I, I'm not sure that He's in great health. Great. Yeah. I'm not sure if he's doing podcasts these days. I, yeah. I am remiss in that. I reached out to him during the pandemic and I haven't heard from him in a little while and yeah. I need to reconnect with yeah. him. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but he, you know, he, um, when I was working for him, he was really at the pinnacle of his career. Uh, I, and I agree. I think he's one of the greatest long format food writers of our time. I love that you uh, sought him out because yes. clearly you you went from line cook to you wanted to do journalism. Yes. I, I mean, it. I wanted to do journalism before I went to culinary ah. school. I went to culinary school from working at a newspaper in Canada and before that mm. a magazine as I, as an intern in Canada, knowing I wanted to f- write about food. Yeah. And 
I knew that I knew nothing about food and the only way to gain any kind of respect and have a leg up over any other person who thought food was cool and wanted to write about food Mm -hmm. was to speak the language of the kitchen. So I went to culinary school and worked as a cook with that goal in mind to leave and go back to journalism. Take us to a time when you and Jeffrey had a meal together. Take us back to New York. Like I'd like to get a sense of... The city when you were working for mm-hmm. him, when, when Vogue was, you yeah. know, a, it still is important, but it was really important, especially for this column that he wrote. Yes, it was. And um, what's funny is that he found this niche at Vogue. You know, he wrote for Vogue probably for 30 years, wrote two books out of his essays from Vogue. And he did something that no one else did at the highest level. Um, and I was so lucky to mm. just be a fly on the wall through it. Yeah. Uh, I did research for him, all his recipe testing, grocery shopping. Uh, I worked on his second book with him. And it was such a unique position. I really felt like I was assisting a mad scientist. Did he have like a loft in Chelsea? Yes, a loft I, in Chelsea. I feel like I know this in space. In Union Square. Yeah, or you, I know that like mm-hmm. legendary space. Yes. Yeah. It was extraordinary. He'd been living there since 1979, I think. Yeah. Rent controls, you know, 2,000 square foot quintessential New York loft, a full floor of a building. And he had outfitted this kitchen with all these crazy Mm. um, tools and appliances. And he had floor to ceiling bookshelves of every cookbook ever written with these ladders to crawl up. And I had to dust them and search for books (laughs) and constantly could not keep up with the libraryness of it, keeping up with the stocking and restocking of the books. Um, And he lived two blocks from the Union Square Green Market. So really working for him, having only moved to New York a a little more than a year, maybe maybe or so Mm -hmm. before, And having just come to New York, went to culinary school, worked as a line cook where my head was down and I never had time off and I never got to explore the city. And then going to Jeffrey was this, it was like I had the key to the city. He sent me on these great adventures all the time down to Chinatown to find a rare ingredient to the New York Public Library to research menus from the 1800s. He sent me up to Kitchen Arts and Letters, you know, at 103rd Street to find new cookbooks. Mm -hmm. And I really got to get to know, you know, New York Mm. and discover New York through that lens, which was amazing as a young person. It really crystallized your place, um, which ended you up at Food and Wine eventually. Do you remember a meal? Is there like a meal? With Jeffrey? Yeah. I mean, so I remember, oh, yes, many, many meals. So we did so much eating together and testing and tasting. But going out to a meal with him, I remember he took me, the first time I was able to like go out for dinner with him was to a restaurant in Soho, I don't believe it exists anymore, called Hanmura An, a very traditional Japanese restaurant that at the time was amazing because it wasn't a sushi restaurant. I mean, New York has been, was covered in sushi restaurants, but this was a much more traditional omakase it had a room where they just pulled noodles mm-hmm. and made fresh tofu. Oh, my. And I had oh, never. Right it was this beautiful second level on maybe Mercer or Thompson mm-hmm. or West Broadway. I'm like. I mean, Soho in in, in this era had yeah. a lot of like different style of Japanese restaurants. It like did. the sushi was Midtown and maybe in the East Village. Yes. But the like more like Kiseki's were in like, That's right. Soho. And there was Hanmura and And then um, that restaurant that is still the Japanese restaurant mm. that was still and so is still there that I'm blanking on at the moment. But anyway, yes. Hanmar Ann was beautiful. And I went up for dinner with him and his dear friend Ed Levine. Oh yeah. Who went on to found Serious Eats yeah. and 
he was already a, a television and, and uh, you know, food writing personality in New York. But what a character to been on the show. I'll link yeah, to that yeah. they were they were they were amazing together. They were an amazing team. And no one knew Jeffrey as well as Ed yeah. and Jeffrey's assistant. So we all were also me and the, the line of women before me and after me. Yeah, really. Ed was like our our boss our Bosley to <laughs> to to Jeffrey's Charlie if Love we were the angels you know. Love it. Is it Suen? Is that the restaurant you're thinking of? Suen. Yes, exactly. Suen. Oh, there's Suen. Yes, but no, Su-en. there's another one. It's a sushi restaurant. I'm gonna follow up with okay. you and I'll tell you. There's Tomei on Thompson. Tomei, I know, and actually Tomei featured large in my relationship to Jeffrey too. Yeah, Tomei's great because Tomei was great, and I had eaten at Tomei the week before I interviewed with Jeffrey, and Jeffrey asked me in that interview what's the best sushi restaurant you've ever eaten at in New York? And I said, Tomei. And he laughed and said, well, you clearly don't read Vogue magazine because if you had, you would have read my article from two months ago, which claimed that Tomei was the worst sushi restaurant. Oh, my god! And I was gosh. like, oh, I've definitely failed, and I'm definitely not getting this job. What a peek into his world. I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned cookbooks. I love to get your sense, uh, the Moosewood cookbook. Yes. I-, I love that you point this out. I feel like the Moosewoods legacy is fading. I Perhaps. feel like not a lot of young and younger are thinking about Moosewood. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. wonderful Ithaca restaurant that I actually had somebody on the show and I asked her if she went to Cornell and she'd never been to Moosewood. Is it still there? It still is definitely it is. Wow, there. Wow, I've never been either, but I've also never been to Ithaca. That's okay. Either. She went to college. But anyways, right. but if let's you're remember Ithaca, that yes. book because I think you, you called that one out. Well, I called it out because Moosewood was my first cookbook Love that. as a teenager uh. that I cooked from in earnest on my own. And specifically, you know, it's a it's a vegetable cookbook. It's a vegetarian cookbook. Yeah. And that is was sort of trailblazing at the time. And it wasn't sort of in fashion mainstream. And I just loved, you know, she was my Alice Waters, my East Coast Alice Waters. So good. And so good. I remember still, I, I don't necessarily cook from it that often anymore, but it taught me seminal recipes that mm-hmm. I certainly make still. Um, I, you know, thinking about making vegetable soups and uh, butternut squash soup. I remember making from that book. Yeah, that I'll always. I have make. a friend who worked at a cafe mess in Wisconsin. He told me that every day they'd make a soup of the day, and literally it was a page from Moosewood. Yeah, there the you cafe. go. Smart move. I mean, right? She knew what she was doing. Totally. Now tell me um, other bo- another book that you have out more often than not in your home kitchen mm. that you really like keep going back to. We, we're here at Penguin Random House. I have to ask you about books. Yes. I mean, I love cookbooks. And, yeah. and, and sadly, I do think that these days when people reach for, for recipes, they're not always reaching for books. And I have shelves upon shelves upon shelves upon books, and I really do try to access them. Not necessarily always for specific recipes, but for reference. Uh, that was really something Jeffrey taught me too. And that's the beauty Research. of cookbooks. It, right. It's not about the the recipes. It's almost secondary in many parts. It's about the, the reference and the history. That's right. So many books that I reference often. Uh, a few that come to mind are um, Mitchell Davis, mm. who used to be at the James Beard Love Foundation Mitchell. and is a dear friend, also a fellow Canadian. He wrote a book called Kitchen Sense years yes. ago. And I found that it just was the re- the recipe book. It's not pictures. It's not glossy photography. But it, it sort of solidified so many great references to classic cooking mm-hmm. and recipes that I go back to over and over. Like if I need to know a ba- base great recipe that I know has been 
tried and tested, I go to Mitchell. He has a mm. PhD in food and uh, food studies and nutrition. He's a doctor. What a cool guy, too. Yeah. I love talking Smartest. to Mitchell. Yeah, he's just a great, like, conversation. Yeah. Great hang. Um, I go, you know, when I, I reach for cookbooks a lot for things I know the least, uh, Southeast mm-hmm. Asian cooking, desserts. I always, yeah. you know, I have a big dessert library, not because I'm such a baker, actually quite the opposite, that I really want to make sure I'm, I'm well, you're, you're doing judge, it right. You're judging things right too. Yes, I'm sure for, for your, sure. your work in television, we'll get to your mm-hmm. the television part. I'm sure the cookbooks inform some of the way you think Absolutely. about the show. So many authors that I admire mm-hmm. and look to and read. I mean, it's endless. Like, yeah. It's hard to like think of all of them yep. in the moment. I want to get to now your television career because, we, of course, we'll talk about Top Chef, but I cannot let the good dish go. Oh, I loved well, this show. You might be the only one, Matt. But, I, well, but I, that's not true. I'm I'll joking. say this. I, you invited Daniel Holzman and mm-hmm. I on. We had a great time. But I watched the show before we appeared because I wanted to know what was going on. And I'm like, this is really fresh. This is a cool morning or afternoon whenever mm-hmm. you are daytime living, daytime show that revolved around food and topics related to food it sadly was canceled or paused yeah, i mean it was it's it's a good question i don't know what you would say we are not making new episodes yeah. right now that's not to say that we won't in the future the show was half a season okay daytime <laughs> syndicated talk shows are a challenge they are a category of television i had never done before Interestingly, we worked on making that show for two years before it got made. We made a pilot in the end of 2019. And Sony, who made it with us, shopped it around for a long time. And it did feel fresh for daytime television. And it allowed us to do so many things that I personally have never done on television before. Because daytime is a very different audience than the television I'm usually making on Top Chef or otherwise. It was three women... Three moms, three cooks. Yeah. We had varying, de- very different personalities, points of view, sure. experiences in and out of the food world. But we all were in a kitchen together every day cooking, answering the question, what's for dinner? Exactly. That was sort of the basic premise of the show, the elevator pitch. But we got to do it keeping in mind all the new, interesting moments we're in in the media. We did a lot of stuff that interacted with social. We got to follow food trends and have a lot of interesting influencers and and cooks and chefs on with us and celebrities to talk about and cook with them. And for me, it was revelatory because I got to just be in the kitchen all day, every day, you know— cooking with people I love to cook with. And I I learned so much. I bet. And I like the fact that it was pretty timely and you could like, you know, address modern topics. And, yes. and there's a quick turn, which I think is challenging in television. Obviously, Top Chef, that's you right. we, we, many months ahead. That's it. We shot it and it would air two or three days later. Yeah. We would shoot three episodes a day. Love that. We, we, we shot so much so quickly, but it just kept us going. It was like mm-hmm. this adrenaline that we were running on. And yep. I was so fired up by the process because having made television for so many years, this felt like something so new to me. And I was learning so much about making television, about making daytime television, about making a talk show, about reading off a prompter, yeah. about you know cooking on camera in an accessible, relatable way. I think I'm a relatable person, but I... I'm on a television show most of the time that I admit is very much about 
fine dining mm-hmm. and a part of the food world that is not accessible to a lot of people. Well said. And I'm very proud of what we do on Top Chef, but it it definitely isn't for everyone. Definitely. It's and not a hang for like the modern, or sorry, it's not a hang for like every home cook, I'll say. For sure not. And you can watch it and love it no matter who you are. Yeah. But you're not taking those recipes and recreating no. them. No. And it's no. not helping you necessarily uh, get dinner on the table for your family the next morning. And so it's just really refreshing to be able to address that side of me because at the end of the day, I am a mom and I too work a full day and have to take my kids to appointments and doctors and soccer games and then get home and everybody's screaming at me because they're hungry and what (laughs) the heck are we making for dinner? Spice it up. Go late night. I feel like that's your (laughs) format. Go go late night. I I would like to. That's your style. I mean, if if anyone knows you, you're you're all sorts of personality and I feel like letting you say what you want in a late night format would be great. Well, we'll talk about that. Let's do it. I want to talk about Top Chef and the Legacy. I mean, you, Tom, Padma, many got people talking about food in a different way. I mean, honestly, I think you were the first to say in national television, this lacks acid. <laughs> like that idea of like, this lacks acid. Now you hear literally everyone in a restaurant who's like, uh, it's kind of a mid-dish. It, it lacks acid. It's a blessing and a curse, Matt. You did a lot for the culture. Uh, we created a, We created monsters. <laughs> Tom and I joke about it all the time that we we started talking about food. I mean, that was really the MO of the show from the first episode was to talk about the real life of cooks and open this door to the kitchen that most people didn't get to see. Mm-hmm. And to talk about food in an elevated way, in a in a way that really showed you what it meant to be a cook at the highest level, yeah. the skill and the craft required, the training, the physicality of it, the challenges of it. Yeah. And we are really proud that we got to speak to that. And we did teach people a lot of things about cooking, about seasoning food properly, Mm -hmm. about the balance of acid and heat and flavor. You probably said unctuous too, like early on. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, apology accepted. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. But what's funny is that now we sit down in restaurants, Tom and I, for example, and we like to be off-duty when we're eating because mm-hmm. we do love eating and we want to always love eating yeah. and dining out and discovering new things. And so when we go out for dinner, whether it's with each other or on our own with our friends and families, I'm actually off-duty. Like, I don't judge the food. I don't even think about it. I'm just excited to be there and yeah. taste things and be in the moment with my with my fellow diners. Yeah. But we listen on other conversations and we hear people say things <laughs> like, oh, this dish lacks acid or what's the flavor profile. Yeah, flavor we profile. Oh, my god! cringe because I actually never use the term flavor profile. Thank I still God. will Thank never you, use the term flavor profile. You use the word program, like your bread program. Oh, yeah. No. No, I, I don't. I don't banned. do that. Absolutely banned. Good. So what's interesting about that is that it makes me cringe a little bit. At first, it would, and Tom and I would always say, like, we created monsters. This is our (laughs) fault. It is our fault. I will take the blame and the responsibility for that. On the other hand, when I take a step back, I am so proud because truly we've changed the language of food. And I think the whole goal of the show at the end of the day was to make people um, excited about dining out, yeah. appreciative of the work that goes into a plate of food when you order it in a restaurant, to look at a menu differently and try something you've never tried and understand what the cook behind the scenes is going yeah. through, who are, is rarely acknowledged and feel seen, and also to appreciate that that gift, that skill. So 
at the end of the day, I'm very proud that now most 16-year-olds like to talk about the balance of acid and heat. I love it. Food. It's also true. I mean, you, you really brought the spotlight to the culinary world in a way that can't even be described. You did such a great word job there. What's the new phrasing then in 23? What's the new word? Did you actually say a dish is mid? Did you use the word mid? Oh, did I? No, I think you did. I No, I just did. But have you oh, ever said oh, that mid. on television? No, right. uh, I don't know if I have. All right, thanks. I'm good. I, I said that almost as a joke. Uh, I liked it. Um, <laughs> I'm. It, what's the new word? I mean, there's a lot of things. I think that we are tuning in now in this moment. And at Top Chef, we've certainly been very conscious of addressing origin. And that's something we talk about a lot. And it's not necessarily one phrase or one trend, but speaking differently about food, whether it's ingredients or dishes and their history and their origin, being much more conscious Mm -hmm. of that. And that's really been a lesson in anthropology to me that excites me because we're able to really acknowledge and show off and showcase cuisines and cultures yeah. that until now weren't in the spotlight in the food world. You know, we for so long had this Western European lens and it's really cool to cool. share that light. It's with also so many other really places. challenging because it's mm-hmm. uh, not a lot, not a lot of television to sit, talk about a culture, right? Like you have to mm-hmm. do those pre-tapes and, and go to like the, or like go to the chef's home and, and do all that kind right, of stuff. Right, right. But still like f- being able to talk about a Southeast Asian dish and the heritage of it in like 30 seconds. Right. Not easy. And be respectful, right. but also acknowledge that we're not experts. And yes, I am a judge and this is complicated in my role. It's definitely a way my role as a judge has yeah. changed changed is that I am, you know, the three of us are the authorities on the show. We are the experts. That is why we are there doing what we do. But I am not an expert in everything. And so everyone has bias, right? And so how do I make sure that I check that bias constantly? Yeah. But also still have an authentic conversation, admit what I don't know, but also feel like I am credible yeah, how I do you not it. say, like, that one time I was on vacation in X country, yeah. I had this great thing, and this wasn't quite up to that? I mean, you you, you got to be are, really careful. Uh, and it's endless debate, hard. which is why our judges' table takes so much takes so yeah. much longer than most people think. And or to know. be clear, it's just the three of you tasting. There is no outside. Well, there's a fourth. There's always a judge. Oh, sorry. A, a guest the judge. The fourth, right. And that fourth. guest judge is actually key, 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 I right, think, right, in right. the balance of our decision-making because they come in— blind. They don't know the chefs. They don't know the background. doesn't matter if we're on episode one or episode 16. And they have no horse in the game. And they're not, you know, knowledgeable about anything behind the scenes. We try to stay really objective and don't have any uh, relationship or or socializing with the chefs off camera. But this person really served that that role. I want to get into that because we had uh, we had Sola and we had Daniel. yeah. From Big Brunch. Sure. He had a little different. Uh, very, view, very different. Very different show. So I want to get to those guys. But this new season really taps into the international Top Chef community. Many of the winners from previous uh, episodes from the international community are competing. Do you have a favorite international Top Chef that you like go back to and watch? Well, and, like, yes you... and no. We don't have access to them here, most of them. Okay. So I can't claim to have watched many of them before oh, this year. You don't get the DVDs? No. We get our, <laughs> we get our, we did get our DVDs for a long time. Hilarious DVDs. Uh, yes. Nice reference. Uh, so uh, we had watched, I, I had seen a couple episodes of Top Chef France because yeah. our producers are in 
communication with the other executive producers from the other ver- yeah. versions. There are, I believe, 29 versions That's... of Top Chef around the world. Wow. It's amazing. And so, and actually in 2019, our executive producers, after we shot our finale, that was season 17, we shot it in Tuscany. Our executive producers flew to Paris and met with every other executive producer from all the Top Chef variations around the world. And that's where World All-Stars was Mm -hmm. really born. But they exchanged ideas and challenges, and that was really cool because they came back to us for the following season, which was in the middle of pandemic, season Mm -hmm. 18 in Portland, which was a very fraught, difficult yeah, time to make television, but really invigorated because they'd gotten all these great ideas and challenges from yeah. the other shows and the way that they had twisted and changed and evolved it, our show to fit in their market. And so we got a lot of inspiration from challenges that Top Chef France had done. It that, really, and the ratings were extremely high. For yes, that yes. Well, everyone was homed. Everyone was home. Respect. I wasn't going to say that, but, I, but I just, we worked it, really, really. You hard. worked hard on that season, and I just know in the zeitgeist, your show, I would say, returned to yes, like yes, the top. I would agree. It I was agree. really cool to see that happen. It was. Well, we really addressed everything that was happening in the restaurant industry yeah. head on. We lived in a bubble, and it was a very scary time to be yeah. in the restaurant industry, and we tried to make that very clear. Um, but I will say my favorite, of course, mm. where I'm allegiant in the world <laughs> of Top Chef variations is Top Chef Canada. Right. Because that's my homeland. Yeah. And You've been on the show, I'm I've sure. I've been on Top Chef Canada uh, twice. I did season one. I did an, a, a guest judging episode. And then this this past season, which I think was their season 10 wow. that just aired, I went back and judged Restaurant Wars with oh, them. Oh, right. Where were you, where were you filming it? Uh, in Toronto. Oh, right. They only film it in Toronto. They do yeah. finales elsewhere, but they always shoot And And aside, where do you fall in the Ben Sloan? Um, I think it's mid. Yeah, thank you it's for bringing back the mid. That hurts me. <laughs> that, hur- that hurts me. But if we're going to talk about Canadian bands, I can talk about Canadian bands all day. No, we don't need to go there. But uh, let's talk about the new season. You've got all these winners from previous Top Chef International uh, editions. You've got them all in the same room. I mean, yes. how many alpha dogs are like going head to head? This must have been intense. Alpha dogs. They were yes, many. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, speaking back for a moment to this idea I was saying about how our conversations on the show now are so diverse and so ever-changing and there's just um, – we're able to express so much that's going on in the industry and in the world through our show um, and the conversation about diversity and about immigration and, mm-hmm. and sustainability and all these things that are so directly related to the way we eat – And what was sort of on steroids pumped up next level about doing this international version is that usually those conversations until this point have been about how those topics play out in America. Mm. So all the different food and the diverse ingredients and the ways that all of our chefs and contestants have cooked over those first 19 seasons – were still under the guise of how they cooked in America. Mm-hmm. Many of them have been first generation or immigrants themselves from other countries to America. But again, it's still in the context of that dialogue and going international all of a sudden. We're not talking about being um, a Thai immigrant to America and how that conversation happened or Vietnamese, for example, immigrant to New Orleans and cooking in New Orleans or in Charleston, learning about the Galagichi and how that played into the cuisine of that corner of the world. We're actually it's about these people representing their the origin, directly. like the Olympics, the, origin. the Olympic exactly. style of food. Yeah, correct. And so that 
even more so made mm. the conversation fascinating and the ingredients even more expansive yeah. and the origin stories of the way they cooked, I think, even I mean, more engaging. You get the chef from Thailand and then you get the Thai chef living in, in England right. riffing on each other. Right. And wow. you get, um, you know, a, a Polish chef. That, there was the, the chef who is on the show representing Italy was actually from the Congo mm. and moved to Italy and won a season of Top Chef Italy. But her perspective was so extraordinary and so extraordinarily different mm. because of that pathway yeah. of her life. Uh, so, you know, we had two chefs who I think had both been winners of Top Chef Middle East, one uh, in Saudi Arabia, I believe, and the other from Jordan. You know, so these were just really exciting people to watch cook and to be able to eat their food. Sounds like a great season. It was cool. It's going to be a cool, I can't wait to watch it unfold. Um, I have to ask you about a few winners. Um, yeah. I know we talked about Harold season one, so we won't get into him, but I want to like go through a couple of my favorite winners sure. from previous seasons. Just a short, like, like just, we'll do word association. Yeah, great. Stephanie Izzard, season four winner. Joy. Also just warrior, queen. Yeah, girl in the goat. Shout amazing. Out. Shout out. She's created the most enormous, amazing, successful story. Yeah. She was our first female winner. Um, I think she has stayed so grounded and so dedicated to quality in what she does. And, mm -hmm. and I adore her. She also just, she brings me joy. That laugh, that smile. She's just cool. I did. And by the way, I, I didn't even tell you about these. And I, I honestly, no, that's okay. honestly these are, these could be like, you could also not like them. I mean, you could. Yeah, <laughs> I could. And some of them I do. R Richard, I don't. Richard I don't Blaze like. season eight. Ha. Richard Blaze season eight, different from Richard Blaze season four. Um, right. You're right. Richard Eight season. season eight was on fire. He won. He took yeah. our first All-Stars. Yeah. Richard's, you know, an interesting Top Chef case because he was in season four. He was a finalist. Yeah. Then he was in season eight All-Stars and he won deservedly. And then he came back to us as a judge for several seasons. So he got to be with us yeah. on our side of the table, which I mm. think was really um, uh nerve-wracking for him yeah. but in the end he owned it and was great at it and he's super smart yeah. and he is amazingly like earnest about food and yes he is like mr molecular man and wacky with that four foot hair yeah, situation cool. but uh i don't know i i think he has really carved an amazing path for himself too both on television yeah. and in restaurants. Dude is on the, sh the the competition show after the Super Bowl. That's right. Like whatever that yeah. one's called. <laughs> uh, and he's great. I mean, <laughs> I, I I spend a lot of time when we're together kind of poking fun at him. But, you know, it's because I love him. May Lin season, season 12. Oh, she's the strong, silent type. She You didn't see her coming. No. And, but oh, had the sickest she, skills in that season, though. Sickest. Best sickest. skills. Still, Still does, by the way. No, no, of course. Like, to this day, one of the best chefs around. Um, she cooked my birthday meal last year on The Good Dish. Oh, cool. Because they asked me what I could possibly want for a meal that day that I couldn't just get in mm. New York City. And she sent me her um, Szechuan hot chicken sandwich, and it made my life better. Oh, man. Uh, but— Eating her food at Nightshade, too, in L.A. when she had that restaurant, I thought was so amazing as a moment. She has such a beautiful point of view. She is someone who doesn't need to be, like, loud and showy, but her skills really speak for mm -hmm. themselves. She's understated. She over-delivers every time. I remember season 12, her plating changed everything. Yeah. It was her. 
And it has been copied ever since. Mei Lin brought us a style of cooking and plating, this modernist, beautiful take on the food of her culture, but also blending it so beautifully with L.A. and California and Mm -hmm. America in a style, in a modernist style of presentation that, like, I had never seen before. Yeah. It, like, bloom. It looked away. great on television. It looks gorgeous, great in person. Gorgeous. Night shades. And it was hers. It was really yeah. hers. I'm going to give her all the credit. All right. I'll leave it at that. We, we won't get to anybody you don't like, but we'll, we'll leave it I, at that. I like a lot. I like I know most, most people. You, 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 sh- you crowned them champions, so I'm sure you yeah. like them in some Well, respects. that doesn't always mean I like them. Yeah, the some most. of them have maybe fumbled, the made some fumbles after the fact. We won't get into those. Okay. I have to ask you then, you don't really interact with the with the contestants because we had Solal Whaley and we had uh, Daniel, Daniel Harthausen on who were both on the big brunch. One was a judge, one was a contestant. And they both kind of said that like everyone vibed, like they hung out a lot during production. No, we production. don't do that. It doesn't work for our formula for a lot of reasons. Why? Because then we can't have objectivity. Ah. I mean, subject, yeah, yeah, we can't have objectivity. Yeah, you got it right, yeah, yeah. I think the absolute success factor in Top Chef is that division between us and them. Mm-hmm. I don't want to know who they are as people until mm-hmm. after the show. That is not to say that I don't hang out with them now. No. Once the show has aired, I can't wait to hang out with half of them. So many of them become really close friends. I was texting Melissa King this morning to make a dinner date because she's in town. Um, you know, I, I see Harold all the time. Yeah. So many winners or not of these contestants have come into my life in a big, meaningful way after the fact. But I believe the tension in our show, the success of our show rests on the fact that we have zero vested interest Mm -hmm. in them as people and 100% vested interest in what they put in front of us every day at that challenge. And the reverse can be said of our viewers. And that Mm -hmm. is where it all comes together. Well said. I mean, it's like when you pack the knives, you don't want to feel any emotion. I don't want to because that's not what our show is about. No. Dan's big brunch, big brunch show had a completely different mo, right? Oh yeah. And our show is very much about professional chefs and that dining experience mm-hmm. um, at, at uh, in a certain way. And we want to be objective. The same, I liken it to how you are as a diner when you eat at a restaurant. Yeah. When you eat at a restaurant and sit down at a new restaurant you've never eaten before, it doesn't matter to you if the chef isn't feeling well. If his partner left him the, ne- the that morning if their delivery of lettuces didn't come in, if the line cook called in sick. None of that even occurs to you as a diner when you sit down. You expect great food for the money you're paying yeah. and a consistent, enjoyable service experience. Yeah. And if the food's not good, you're not returning it's to that restaurant. It's transactional. That's right. It's an absolutely transactional nature and, of the beast. And yeah. that's just the truth of it, that yeah. if it's not good, you won't return. You'll probably tell all your friends that it's not good and they shouldn't go either. If it's great, you will shout it from the hilltops yeah. and return and tell everyone you know to go back as, to go as well. And that's what we want when we eat that food. And that is how, after 17 seasons, we have figured out that it's the only way to keep it fair and, you know— and keep it, you know, on the up and up is that we know nothing about what's happening in the kitchen. We don't know if one of contestants' <laughs> wife is pregnant back yeah. home, if they had Some a bad kissy day. Some kissy face off. Cut, if there's kissy face off yeah. camera. None of it. We don't know any of it while it's happening. We find that stuff out at the same time oh. the viewer does when the narrative is all stitched together that's in the like final edit. That's like Michael Jackson popcorn emoji. I mean, come on. That's yeah. like, that's like. 
that's like got to be so fun to watch that show. It is. Uh, well, it's also scary. It's amazing because there's so much going on that we aren't privy to when we're shooting. Those contestants aren't even allowed to go to the bathroom alone. They are watched. They don't have phones. They're isolated from us. If they are in the vicinity, our producers scooch us away. We aren't even allowed to make eye contact with them if uh-huh. it's not either yeah. at a challenge or at the judges' table. And I like it that way. Yeah, no, it, it, it works, Gail. I mean, it's a, it's a great show. I, I love it. And yeah. I'll be tuning in. Thank you. We asked all guests on the Taste Podcast if you could write a food culture book or a cookbook without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you mm-hmm. have all the money mm-hmm. in the world. Oh, those two things are rare in the book world. Quite rare, but I asked it theoretically. Bring and, it. And let's 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 find out what would that book be. And there's a lot. There's a lot of books. Um, yeah, there I'm, are. You know, there's a, there's a book <laughs> idea I have, but I don't want to tell it to you yet because I'm Why? currently working on it. No, because I'm working on it, and I will tell you Your when pitch. I can maybe get it made and write it. But um, I I I am a, a bit of a food nerd, and so I love the books that go really deep, yeah. you know, into culture and science. You know, Harold McGee style has always been, like, where I want to be reading. Um, and I, I don't know. I would love to to sort of do, like, deep exploration, um, at, you know, travel, the most beautiful sort of ingredients in the world, the 10, 15 ingredients most Ooh. delicious ingredients in the world and how they're farmed and their uses and, you know, where you can find them Love and that. how to, I don't know, replicate. What's the first ingredient that pops in your mind? What's chapter one? Mangosteen. Wow. I just pulled that one out, but I, it's true. I love, I love that. A native of Southeast Asia. A Southeast Asian fruit that you really can't find here still. No. And I believe is the most delicious fruit in the world. Gail Simmons, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. (laughs) Thank you very much. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 